Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Missions trip that we will con- we'll call that this morning. It occurs immediately after the church at Jerusalem suffers some persecution and they go out and begin to take evangelism outside the walls of uh, Jerusalem, outside the area of Judea, and they take it to Samaria. Uh, now, some of the most exciting uh, ministry experiences that you're, you can ever have are on missions trips. How many of you have ever been on a missions trip? Short-term, long-term, you don't missions trip. Uh, some of the, the best times I've ever had uh, in ministry, some of the most fulfilling times, some of the most precious moments I've had have been on missions trips. Some exciting things have happened. Uh, also, some pretty embarrassing things have happened. Uh, I remember me and April, we took a group down to uh, Costa Rica uh, to uh, minister there, and we were working with Daniel Rojas. We were getting into some schools, and I, I took four years of Spanish in high school. Uh, I lived in Chicago and worked in Chicago for five years, and I worked on the docks, and there's a very large Hispanic population in Chicago. So I, I felt I spoke pretty good Spanish. I was wrong. Uh, I spoke Spanglish. Uh, I usually would speak English with a Spanish accent, hoping that would work. Uh, so we had a translator. And I remember I'm talking to these children, and I'm introducing myself, and I'm introducing April. And I would call April my little mamacita. Uh, now, mamacita in Spanish, it literally means uh, little mama. So it's like, hey, this is my little mama. In Chicago, it is slang for hot mama. I knew that. So I'm calling April, hey, this is my little hot mama. Uh, and I thought that's, that's pretty, they'll like that. Uh, I did not know this until about four presentations where I'm introducing April as my little mamacita. In Costa Rica, mamacita means prostitute. <laughs> so I'm calling my wife, hey, here's my prostitute. Uh, not really what you want to call your wife on a mission strip. Luckily, the children understood. I just didn't know what I was talking about. And so they got a good laugh out of me calling April my little prostitute. April did not. It made me promise to never call that her again. Uh, now, this morning, this is what we're going to look at. Uh, we are going to see a, a similar theme that we've seen throughout the book of Acts. And just so you know, you're going to continue to see this theme. And the theme is... The Spirit of God in ordinary believers accomplishes incredible things. At the end of the book of Acts, we, saw, we see God use Philip. And we saw Philip last week where God took Philip, and Philip was the, one of the deacons that had been put in place by the apostles in Acts chapter 6. And so he takes Philip, a, a layman in our, our kind of terminology today, he takes a layman and he takes him to Samaria, and an incredible revival breaks out. The Bible says that through word and deed and Philip ministering there, that joy is brought to the city. Many people get saved. John and Peter come down to cause their so much going on that John and Peter leave Jerusalem and they they go to uh, Samaria and they kind of uh, see this ministry and just wonderful things are happening. And so God has first of all used Philip, uh, the deacon, the layman, to really get the gospel to the Samaritans and do an incredible work there. And the Spirit of God has been preparing Philip for an incredible task. But we're going to see something else too. We're going to see the Spirit of God 
had been working in the heart of a foreigner to bring him to Christ and to bring these two together. And here's what I, I want us to understand through our lesson this morning. God wants to use every single person here to spread the gospel. If you are a child of God this morning, you are called to missions. You're called to evangelism. You know, we tend to think, when we think about missions, we think of foreign missions. And foreign missions are for these elite men and women who are willing to give up everything, leave home, go to some, some foreign lands, go to some maybe difficult areas to preach the gospel. They're, they leave their home. I was, uh, you know, I was, uh, uh, saw the, the, one of our latest missionaries, uh, Junior McIntosh. He's our missionary down in Belize. And uh, every time I read his, his, uh, his prayer letters, uh, it's just the things that they have to go through. Because he's not in like a... Belize is a, is a, a very uh, touristy area if you go to the coast. They've got some great scuba ivy down there. And it's very kind of nice and really kind of, you know, uh, citywide, but he's, he's not there. He's in the jungle. And uh, one reason we're never going to go see him is because he's in the jungle. And uh, every time I talk to him, he's like, oh yeah, we got these snakes running around. You got to be careful. You'll step on a snake anywhere you go. And I'm like, snakes, Pfft, not me. Lord be with you, Junior. Uh, but he's got, they have to bring in their own water. They have to, uh, they have these water things that just got a van. And I just, I, I just, the things he goes through and when you talk to him, he, he, he uh, gave up an incredible job. And uh, he, him and his wife, before they went on missions to Belize, they had just finished building their dream home. They finished building their dream home and they moved in and then everything was going great for them. They both had good jobs, making good money. Their kids were graduating and going to college and everything was going great. And then God calls him to Belize. So he sells everything. Gives up everything and, and moves down there to do a great work for God. And you think about it, you think, man, these, those are who God calls. These people who are willing to go. Uh, I talked to a missionary this week who's a missionary to, uh, the, uh, to, to Haiti, who's coming. He's going to be here with us in, in November, presenting this ministry. And man, Haiti's a very, another difficult area. Think about it, these people who go to these hard places who are willing to leave their family, leave everything behind to go serve God. You're like, man, that's who God wants to use for missions. But that's not true. See, God included the Great Commission into the call that every believer has to follow him. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 11, and he blessed Abraham, he, he called him, he says, Abraham, I want you to follow me to a land I'll show you. Didn't tell Abraham where he's going to go. Didn't give Abraham a map. Just said, Abraham, follow me. But he said, Abraham, through you following me, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. Look what Jesus tells us to do when he, he calls us to follow him in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 19, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll make some of you fishers of men and some of you will be investors in fishermen. He says, every person who answers the call of salvation, every person who chooses to accept me as their Savior and who follows me in discipleship, every child of God is called to be a missionary. Wherever God has placed you. Now look, I'm not 
Just calm down. I'm not, I'm not trying to get every one of you to say, I'm going to go to Africa. I don't want all of, you know, if, if God lays on your heart to go somewhere, great. But I'm not trying to get you all to go out. Uh, some of you, maybe, uh, I can choose who I want to send away. Uh, but the rest of you, if God calls you to a foreign mission field, great. Go to a foreign mission field. But here's what I want you to understand. If God doesn't call you to a foreign mission field, God still calls you to missions. God still calls you to get the word of the Lord, the gospel, to those who have never heard. See, there is no gap between the call to follow Christ and the follow to engage in the Great Commission. Now, if you were to study your Bible, you would discover that the word missionary is never used. It's a word we made up. It's a word we put in. You know, and it's, you know, everybody claims uh, the Apostle Paul. Missionaries claim the Apostle Paul. He's the first and greatest missionary. Church planters claim the Apostle Paul. He's a great church planter. Here's the thing. God doesn't use the word missionary. God doesn't use the word church planter. When God talks about his apostles, when God talks about his disciples, he uses the Greek word that means sent ones. Every child of God is a sent one. We are sent somewhere. So involvement in evangelism, involvement in missions isn't something you do later in life. It's something that God has put on your call of salvation. It's something that God wants you to do now. So last week, as we were looking at Acts chapter 8, and we saw Philip, we saw that Philip, he's, he's in Samaria, and he's doing a great work. So many people are getting saved that word gets back to Jerusalem about the great work happening in Samaria. And so Peter and John go down from Jerusalem to, to see what's happening. And then they were returned to Jerusalem and they leave Philip in Samaria continuing the work that he had started. So let's look at Acts chapter 8. Look at verse number 26. <clears throat> and the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying... Arise and go towards the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. So God comes to Philip and he tells Philip, Philip, I know there's a lot going on here in Samaria, a lot of people being saved, but I want you to go down to a place called Gaza. And Luke points out this is a desert place. Gaza was not a place that you really wanted to visit. Now, today we think of Gaza, we think of the Gaza Strip. Again, probably not a great place to visit sometime uh, because there's so much conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelites and just, uh, you know, not a, not a very safe place. But it's still, it's got a lot of houses there, it's got a lot of population there. Uh, and this time, it, it wasn't uh, a great place. It was very desolate, it was dry, it was arid, there was no vegetation there. Hardly anyone lived in this area, and the people that did live there were the Philistines. This was a Philistine city. So God calls Philip out of Samaria. Now remember, Samaria wasn't the typical place a Jewish person would go because there was so much animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, throughout over a thousand years because the Samaritans, of course, were half Jewish, half Gentile, and the Jews hated them because they were so stuck on purity. But they, they put aside their differences. Philip puts aside his differences, goes there, and is used by God to see a lot of people saved. The Philistines were the greatest enemy Israel ever had. 
You read the Old Testament, every time that they're being persecuted or conquered or taken into slavery, you know who's doing it? The Philistines. So God tells Philip to leave Samaria to go to this nasty, dirty, out-of-the-way town that's filled with Philistines. So he tells Philip, first of all, Philip, again, he's in Samaria, not a place that's really in his comfort zone, and says, I want you to leave where you're at, where great work's being done, to go to somewhere that's way outside of your comfort zone. It's inconvenient to get there. He had to walk 165 miles. Walk. No, no, no car took him there. He didn't hop on a bus. He didn't take a plane. He walked 165 miles to get from Samaria to this place in Gaza. Now look, uh, missions trips can, can be inconvenient. You know, last trip we took was to Jamaica, and we left uh, on a Friday morning, and we were supposed to fly out of Montego Bay Friday morning. We would arrive uh, in Charlotte on Friday uh, afternoon or Friday late afternoon, early evening. We had a layover, of course, because you, you can't fly into Charlotte without a layover, usually in Atlanta. Uh, ours happened to be Miami. But so we were going to rise a little, but we get to Montego Bay and our flight is delayed and delayed and delayed and then canceled. And we missed our connecting flight in Miami. And they're trying to figure stuff out. They're like, we can take you to another airport and we can fly some of you home today and some of you home tomorrow. And we're like, that's not going to help us because we're all supposed to be there at the same time because, you know, we get to Charlotte, we don't have different cars. We have one vehicle all riding in. So me getting to Charlotte 12 hours early than everybody else doesn't help me because I got to hang around for 12 hours for everybody else to get in the van. And so we ended up having, it took what should have taken us just a, about a five or six hour trip, ended up taking us 28 hours to get back. We got back super early Sunday morning. And we got home, I think it was like two or three in the morning. And then we had to come to church that morning. Now I didn't, I, I had to come because I'm the pastor. I luckily, if y'all remember, I had somebody preach for me. Because I'm like, I'm on three hours of sleep. Ain't no telling what I'm going to say. So I had somebody come in and preach for me, but I still was here. And I told the team, I was like, look, y'all don't have to be here. I know we're all tired. Y'all do what you, if you want to sleep. But all of them came. But it was a very long, very frustrating trip. Now, I'm not going to complain about that in heaven when I see Philip, who had to walk 165 miles to get to his mission field. He wins. Because he had to walk 165 miles in the desert, in the heat. Yeah, I was stuck for 28 hours, but you know what? I had air conditioning. I had Wi-Fi. I had a place to plug up my iPad. They gave us, oh, and it's so sweet of them. After delaying us so long, they gave us like $10 of food vouchers. You know what $10 will buy you in an airport? <laughs> Nothing! So, but it was so sweet of them to do that for us. But anyway, so, you know, following God and obeying God, sometimes it can be difficult. Now look at verse 27. And he arose and went, no question, nothing. He arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all the treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship 
was returning and sitting in his chariot and reading Isaiah the prophet. So this, this Ethiopian official, he, is, he has been in Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem to worship. And we're going to get to that a little bit later about what really happened and what's going on here. But he's leaving Jerusalem and he's passing through Gaza on his way back to Ethiopia. Now, today, if you look on a map, Ethiopia is kind of a small country, very south uh, of the Nile. But in this time, Ethiopia was a huge area. It included Ethiopia, the Sudan. It was basically everything south of the Nile River in Africa. It is a huge area, a tremendous nation. And this guy, he is the treasurer he is the chief financial officer of the entire kingdom. Now, it's important that he's under King Candace because Ethiopia had a king, but the king in this time had no authority. He was a figurehead. He just sat on the throne and looked pretty. Uh, the queen had all the authority. She was the one with the power. So he is a eunuch in her her kingdom, and he's a very important, very wealthy man. So after leaving Jerusalem, he goes home in his chariot. Now, we have an image of a chariot. When we think of chariot, we think of this, right? Some guy standing up in a half-turtle shell kind of thing, being pulled by a horse. His journey was 1,500 miles. He's not standing up the whole time. That's not what he was in. Uh, this, this, and during this time, powerful people, especially from Ethiopia, would use these things. Next slide. That's a chariot. It's basically a big bed that four to six men carried. Very comfortable, ex except if you're one of the guys. But for the Ethiopian eunuch, the powerful, rich man, he's got his shade on. He's got probably one guy up there fanning him. That's why he can sit down, because that's how he can sit and read. You know, you can't read the book of Isaiah when you're driving a horse or the chariot. So he is slowly taking this comfortable journey back to Ethiopia. It's very comfortable, again, unless you're one of the guys. And he's reading the book of Isaiah, and he's trying to understand it. Look at verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to his chariot. So God speaks to Philip. And look, we see this throughout the entire book of Acts. God is speaking to his children, getting them to fulfill the work that he has. The Holy Spirit speaks to God's people. He moves them into mission. The Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is mentioned 59 times. 40 of those times, he's speaking to God's people. So here's a question we have to ask. Is the reason that the 21st century church isn't as involved in evangelism and missions as the first century church, it's not because we don't have the technology, we don't have the resources, we don't have the knowledge. It's probably because we're not listening to the Spirit like we should. We're not praying like we should. We're not studying the Bible like we should. We're not being discipled like we should. And so when the Spirit speaks, we don't listen. But Philip, the Spirit spoke to him, and he listened. You know, the reason most believers aren't on mission, because we don't listen to the Holy Spirit. You know, God doesn't want us to do the Great Commission for Him. God wants us to do the Great Commission with Him. So He comes to Philip and He goes, Philip, go meet that man. Because Philip, again, Philip gets to Gaza. 
He sees this Ethiopian eunuch passing through, and God says, go talk to that man. Look at verse number 30. <clears throat> and Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired that Philip would come up and sit with him. Now, again, I've always been told that Philip's running beside this guy's chariot and he's driving the horses. And this guy's, you know, riding real fast in his chariot, reading the book. And Philip's riding right beside him, talking to him. Again, didn't what happened. He ran to the chariot, but then again, they're walking real slow and he talks to the guy. And the guy's reading out loud because that's what people did in those days. They would read out loud because, that's, because it showed people that you were intelligent because not everybody could read. So he's reading out loud and Philip comes and says, hey man, you, know what you're, you understand what you're reading? And he says, how, how can I unless someone explains to me what I'm reading? Why don't you come up and explain to me what I'm reading? Now, you know who's not happy about this? The guy's carrying him. They're like, now he's picking up hitchhikers? Come on, man! But Philip gets up on the chariot and he's, he's talking to him, uh, and he's explaining to him. Now, here's what the story is showing us. In the middle of an incredible revival in Samaria, Philip's in Samaria, he's witnessing the people, people are getting saved, church is getting started, work's being done, just a lot of stuff's going on. And in the middle of this great revival, God calls Philip to leave where God is obviously working, to walk 165 miles to a dirty, unappealing area to talk to one guy. This had to be confusing to Philip. Now, I'm sure when Philip first said, hey, go to Gaza, he thought, okay, great, God, he did a great work in Samaria, now I'm going to Gaza, he's going to do the same thing to Gaza. He gets to Gaza, again, it's dirty, it's not very populated, it's the people there he doesn't like, and he, God says, hey, see that one dude over there? Go talk to that one guy. But he doesn't question him. He obeys what God has called him to do, even when it didn't make sense. And here's why. God had been working on the heart of Philip, and God had been working on the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch so that when they would meet together, something incredible would happen. God had been working on this man, and he was looking for something. He goes to Jerusalem to worship. Ethiopia had gods. They had a lot of gods. They worshipped the sun god, the rain god, the moon god. They had all these different deities that they could have worshipped. But he leaves home to go to find something in Jerusalem. He doesn't find it, and we'll see why he doesn't find it a little bit later. And on his way home, God sends Philip to kind of answer his questions. Here's the thing. There are people in your life God has been working on. Maybe they're going through a tragedy and they're starting to question things. Question things about life and eternity and about maybe, okay, is there a God? If there is a God, why would he allow these things to happen? And God's been working on their hearts, preparing them to hear the gospel, and God wants you to be used to preach the gospel to them. Like Philip, God sent you to reach them, to tell them the truth about the gospel in Jesus. Now look at verse number 32. <clears throat> then the, the place of the scriptures which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer. So he opened not his mouth. This is Isaiah 53 that he's reading from. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life 
is taken from the earth. Now, again, this is from the book of Isaiah 53. It is written 800 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah prophesied 800 years before Jesus was born that he would be led like a lamb to a slaughter, that he would be wrongfully accused, and that when he stood before his accusers, he would offer no defense, that he wouldn't open his mouth to defend himself. And that all came true. That's what happened. Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, accused of terrible crimes, crimes that were worthy of and deserving of death in this culture, he didn't say anything to defend himself. And again, as we talked about when we looked at, when we were building up to Easter, in this culture, if you were accused of something and offered no defense, you were basically proclaiming, I am guilty. Very different today. Today, and I tell my kids this, I'm telling you all that, if you're accused of it, even if you're innocent, and the police call you in and say, hey, we're going to ask you questions, the only thing you say is, I want a lawyer. But I'm innocent. Don't matter. Don't offer any, just... Your, your words are, I want a lawyer. That's it. Say, why are y'all telling us that? It's because, uh, just trust me, do that. I want a lawyer. Offer no defense. But in this culture, if you offer no defense, it wasn't a smart, you know, legal maneuver to keep you out of jail either uh, undeservingly or, you know, you did it and you just want to get away with it. Uh, this was, if you offer no defense, you were saying you were guilty. So Jesus stands before Pilate and he offers no concern, no defense, because he is conceding guilt, but not his own guilt. He is consenting to my guilt. He was wounded for my transgressions. He bore my shame. He absorbed God's wrath for my sin. Look at verse 34. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, whom speaketh the, prophet, uh, uh, speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and began the same scripture to preach, un, preach unto him Jesus. And they went on their way. They came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, if I'm reading that and you're like, what? That doesn't what my Bible says. There's a reason for that. Uh, your Bible's wrong. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> uh, there are two different translations, there are two different texts used in translations that we have today. Uh, the MEV, the New King James, and the King James use the minority text, and the ESV, the NIV, the CSB, the rest of they use the majority text. In the majority text, this verse isn't listed in the text that they have, but you should have a footnote that says, some translations or some older texts have this verse. So why do I prefer the King James or the ESV or the, the, uh, new, uh, the MEV or the New King James? Because if I'm going to uh, have a Bible that has, you know, if I can have either more Scripture or less Scripture, I'm going for more Scripture. So if your Bible doesn't have that, I'm not saying your Bible's wrong. I'm just saying some, most, some uh, older texts have this, some versions have this, some versions don't. I like it because what keeps me from being baptized, you got to be saved first. Now, can you be baptized without being saved? Yes. Does it do anything for you? Gets you wet. Can you be baptized after salvation? Yes. Does it do anything for you? Gets you wet and shows people you're a Christian. Doesn't get you a bigger palace in heaven. 
You know, people say, oh, I remember when I first was uh, uh, in ministry, I was, I was uh, do some baptisms at, our, at, our, at my home church. I would always baptize the teens. And one Sunday I get in there and the heater was broken. And so I'm trying to get in and out as soon as possible. So I'm in there and the heater's broken. I'm freezing. This kid gets in, he's freezing, and I went to baptize him. I didn't get his head all the way down, and so his face didn't go underwater, but I didn't care. I was like, you're telling me about this. And my preacher was like, he's going to get to heaven without a face. I'm like, that's not, that's not how that works. That's, that's not what that does. So it's not like if, if part of your body didn't get dunked, that part doesn't go to heaven. No, no that's not what it does. Uh, so baptism is vital for obedience. does nothing for salvation, but it is important for obedience. But anyway... That's a rabbit trail. Your version, your Bible may have it. Your Bible may not have it. I'm not saying who's right or wrong. I'm saying what I prefer. And I'm explaining to you why when you're reading, you're like, my Bible doesn't say that. That's why the Bible doesn't say that. But anyway, here's the point. Uh, Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Salvation is simple. God has done everything necessary for your salvation. So let me rephrase that. Salvation is difficult. Salvation required Jesus to come to earth, live a perfect, sinless life, be accused of crimes he didn't commit, hang on the cross and absorb the penalty for my wrath, die in my place, be buried and rise again to redeem me to God the Father. He did all the work. When he said it is finished, he meant it's done. Salvation is paid for completely by Jesus Christ. So getting saved is simple. You just got to believe all that to be true and put your faith and trust in Him. His perfect life, His substitutionary death and resurrection paid the price for your sins, absorbed your wrath. And we put our faith and our trust in His finished work. We are saved by grace through our faith in Him. Baptism has nothing to do with salvation. It is an outward sign of what happened on the inside. You died with Him in death and you rose again in the resurrection. You are a new creature because of Him. It, baptism shows what you believe. It's like wearing your wedding ring. You know why I wear this wedding ring? Because it's hard to get off? No. Uh, it's not really that hard to get off anymore uh, because it's got UVA on it. Well, yeah, uh, you know, it's got the sword and sabers on there. It shows people I belong to somebody. I belong to April. I'm hers. You know why she wears her wedding ring? Because it costs me a lot. And it shows people she's mine. You know what it says? Hands off, bucko. Don't mess with my girl. And it tells everybody, hey, don't mess with my man. It shows people I belong to somebody. Baptism shows the world you belong to God. Let's keep reading. Verse number 39. And when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, uh, caught away Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found as Azotos, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, what happened to Philip? He's in the water with the eunuch one minute. As soon as the eunuch comes up, Philip's gone. Why didn't God use that trick to get him to Gaza? I mean, why didn't God say, hey, Philip, I need you to go to Gaza. You're there. No. He said, Philip, walk 165 miles, but when you're done, I'm just going to transport you away, buddy. And, but the eunuch, again, he doesn't freak out. I'd be, if I'm the eunuch, I'm freaking out. Where'd that dude go? 
You know who's happy? The four guys that were toting Philip's fat butt around. They're like, we're glad he's gone. Philip, when he suddenly shows up in Azeroth, he doesn't freak out either. You know what he does? He starts preaching the gospel. And he walks 58 miles to Caesarea. He never goes back to Samaria. He stays in Caesarea. We know that because later Paul mentions Philip the evangelist in Caesarea in Acts chapter 21. Philip stayed in Caesarea. He built a ministry there and he spread the gospel and saw people saved. And after Philip was taken away, this Ethiopian eunuch goes home and you know what he does? He starts a church in Africa and the gospel spreads through Africa because of this man. Ancient historian Yusufus, he tells us that this eunuch and his servants, they planted the first church in Africa and the gospel got to the entire world. Because in this time, Ethiopia and Africa, they were considered the end of the world. They didn't know what was beyond there. They didn't, know, they didn't know about America, and they didn't know about South America and Mexico. They didn't know about all that. They knew about what they, what they had, and they thought, man, Ethiopia, the end of, that's the end of the world. That's it. So God used Philip to get the gospel to a place no other Christian had ever been and spread the gospel to the ends of the world. God uses an ordinary guy to spread the gospel to an entire continent, to a new people. People who had no way of hearing uh, the gospel before were able to hear the gospel. And here's, again, this is the point of the whole book of Acts. God uses ordinary Christians dedicated to him and obedient to the Spirit of God to do incredible things. See, Luke is going out of his way to show us that the gospel is spread faster by laymen than by apostles. The gospel goes further through laymen than it ever did through Peter and John. We saw that last week and the first time the gospel leaves Jerusalem. Now we see it as the gospel goes around the world. And we know that it didn't stop here because if you're continuing to read the book of Acts and we're going to and we get to Paul, when Paul goes to Rome to preach the gospel, the first time an apostle goes to Rome to preach the gospel, you know what he finds? Christians. How'd they get there? Some child of God, obedient to the Spirit of God and the Word of God, spread the gospel there. So when Paul gets to Rome, expecting to preach the gospel the first time in Rome, he finds other believers. Because God got the gospel spread further through laymen than he ever did through the apostles. You know, so there are three things I want to point out real quick in this story, and I say real quick every week, and I'm a liar, and I apologize for that. But here's the three things I want to point out. I'm going to try to point them out real quick because I'm already on page eight. And I've only got ten pages. Woo! Number one, no one is unloved by God. Connor, no one is unloved by God. If anyone in this culture would have been viewed as unloved by God, it's this Ethiopian eunuch. He goes to Jerusalem during Passover to learn about the God of the Jews. He wanted to worship in the temple, but he can't. He's not, allowed even, he's not even allowed in 
the temple. Because in the temple, there were a couple courts. There was the court of the Gentiles, where non-Jewish believe people who had converted to Jews could go and worship outside the temple, but still inside the gated wall. And then, of course, there was the, the court of the Jews, where Jewish people could go, and then there was the Holy of Holies and the holiest place. And So there were all kinds of division and sections. So as a Gentile practicing Jew, he could go to the temple and go to the court of the Gentiles, outside the main wall, but still inside the gate. But he couldn't, because he's a eunuch. He's crippled in their culture. And he's not just a Gentile, he's a black Gentile, which really made him stand out, which really made him unwelcome in the temple. He had another thing prohibiting him, not just being a Gentile, he was a eunuch, was considered lame by the Jewish law, even if it was voluntary. Now, there was a, hung, a sign that hung up on the outer court of the temple before the Gentiles could go in, that said, no lame, no blind, and no eunuchs may enter. Now, you may be saying, what's a eunuch? Parents, I'm going to let you explain that to your kids. Adults, we all know what a eunuch is. This sometimes was a punishment for crimes against men and women. About, this was a punishment for sex crimes, gives you an idea there. This guy did it voluntarily. Say, why would anyone do this voluntarily? Because he wanted to work in the, king, in the queen's court. And if you were a man who wanted to work in the queen's court, the king had a stipulation to make sure you didn't get any funny thoughts about you and the queen. Become a eunuch, no problem. So he willingly allowed himself to have this happen to him. So he could become a powerful man. He could become a man of influence. But now he's cut off from the presence of God. Now he goes to the temple to try to get and know something about God. And the first thing he sees before he can even get near God's presence was, hey, you're a eunuch, you're not allowed. Imagine how discouraging that was to him. But remember, he's reading Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53. Now, in our time, we, Isaiah 53, in the Old Testament, this man's book of Isaiah, he didn't have Isaiah 53. He had Isaiah. We broke it up into chapters and verses to make it easier for us so we didn't have to read a whole book all the time because that's what we wanted to do. So Isaiah 50, it was just Isaiah. But in the book of Isaiah, just a few uh, chapters later, he would read this. For thus says the Lord, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off and the sons of a foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love in the name of the Lord and to be his servants to everyone uh, to be his servants to everyone who keeps from polluting the Sabbath and takes hold of my covenant. So this man reads this a little later in Isaiah. Hey, if you're a foreigner, which he is, if you're a eunuch, which he is, God accepts you. You are no longer cut off. Through what? Through Isaiah 53 through the Lamb of God, through Jesus coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying a death in our place, absorbing the wrath of God for us and resurrecting to redeem us to God the Father. Through His work on the cross, we are now accepted by God. He gave a lot, gave up a lot to serve the queen. And he may have regretted it, but now he reads, you're no longer cut off because I paid the price for your sins. Even this foreign, 
unwanted, unwelcome man is loved and accepted by God. No one, no matter who you are, no matter what your past is, no matter where you came from, no matter what you've done, no one is unloved by God. Second thing we notice is God uses the word to bring salvation. This man is seeking for something. He doesn't find it in Jerusalem. So what does he do? He reads the Bible. He knows the God of Israel wrote Isaiah, and he's trying to find out what he was looking for. But he didn't understand it. He couldn't because the Bible tells us the unsaved don't understand the things of God. Isaiah 44. They have not known nor understood, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. Now look, this eunuch's a smart guy. He had to be to get to his position of authority. He had to be to be able to read because not everybody could read at this time. And he's not only reading, he's reading Hebrew. Look, I went to, to Bible college. I took two years of Hebrew. You know how much Hebrew I can read? None without Blue Letter Bible. I'm getting ready. I'm enrolling. I'm going to be getting my master's program, my MDiv program very shortly. i got to take four semesters of Hebrew. You know how I'm going to pass it? Blue Letter Bible. I, can't, I, can, I can understand it when I look at it, when I read it, but if I'm just given a Hebrew script and said, hey, read this, nope, this guy could. He was a very smart man, but he couldn't understand what God was saying. God uses Philip, who Philip is just a layman. He's not a, he, we don't know anything about him really. We don't, he's not a, an intelligent man. He's not a wealthy man. He's just, he's a deacon. And we all know deacons are pretty simple, amen? <clears throat> but God uses Philip to explain to this man about God and salvation. Philip starts at Isaiah 53 and he preaches Jesus to him. And here's the thing. For Philip to be able to explain the Bible to him, you know what Philip had to have been reading? The Bible. If you want to be used by God to explain the Bible to people, you know what you got to know? The Bible. Reading, meditating, memorizing Scripture is vital for our walk with God. I've said this almost every week. God wants to use you, but you have to be ready to be used. You can't rely on just your Bible knowledge you get on Sunday uh, to help get you through or to help for God to use you. You have to read, study, memorize, and meditate on the Bible so you know it on your own and you're ready to be used. Here's the third thing. <coughs> Final thing we want to look at. God works in the ordinary to bring salvation. This seems like an ordinary trip to the eunuch. He's just, he's just headed home. Now, it's a long trip. 1,500 miles. You ever driven 1,500 miles? It's a long trip. You ever been carried by four guys 1,500 miles? Probably going to take a couple of months. Probably really stinks for the four guys. Great for you. Bad for them. But this is a normal trip for him. He goes to Jerusalem, but he's turned away. So he's discouraged, and he heads home, trying to find answers for himself. And then he meets Philip, and everything changes. He meets a man that explains salvation to him. He becomes a believer. He goes home, and he changes his world with the gospel. This man felt unloved, unworthy, unclean, and unaccepted. 
till he meets Jesus on a desert road. All because Jesus worked in the ordinary things of life to send one of his followers, one of his children, to bring him salvation. What do I mean? God has placed you in the lives of unbelievers to show them the gospel, to explain to them the love of God. He's placed you in people's lives to work through something seemingly ordinary. You are there to bring the gospel to them, to show it to them, and to explain the love of Jesus for them. See, this story, it has something for everybody. Say, well, how do you say? How, what do you mean? Here's a, if you're like this eunuch, you're searching. You're lost. You feel worthless, unloved, unaccepted. Here's what God wants you to know. You are never outside the reach of the love of God. No matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter what your, your past is, God lived a perfect life for you, He died on the cross for you, and He rose again for you, and He wants to bring you into His family. All we have to do is accept it. But if you're saved, here's what God has for you. God wants to use you to get the gospel to the entire world. And look, you could be used. Roanoke is an international city. We have refugees from all over the world. We have them from Cambodia, from Afghanistan, from Vietnam, from all. We have, we have people and nationalities from all over the world. God could use you to reach some Afghani refugee who gets the gospel, believes, goes home one day, and a great revival breaks out in Afghanistan. Say, oh, that's, that's impossible. Not with God. And where is it going to start? By one of God's people being willing to be used by God to give the gospel to everyone they can. But you've got to be ready. You've got to be listening for the Spirit of God. You've got to be knowing the Word of God. And every day, praying to God the Father, God, help me be used in some way. God wants to use you to get the gospel to the world. Are we ready for it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.